Let us pray together. Loving God, we have come together to stake our claim as your people. Be with us, we pray, that we may know your presence. Speak through us, that we may know your words. Beat through our hearts, that we may know your love. And act through our bodies, that we may carry out your purpose. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We have been in the middle of a series on practicing Christian faith, and this week's theme is service, which is how we chose the passage from Philippians. The events of the week have shifted the message some, but service is still at the heart of who we are as followers of Christ. And in democratic societies such as ours, we have this idea of public service. A public servant is quite simply someone who has chosen to dedicate her or his life to serving the public, the people. And it all sounds very noble, very altruistic, and at its best, it really is. The idea that you want to devote your life to making life better for everyone around you, however big or small your sphere of influence. But you and I lose a sense of vocation in modern political campaigns. Public service gets lost in the morass of ambition, lost in millions of dollars on advertising and canvassing strategies. Instead, political campaigns usually come about a matter of choosing sides, just as we saw with our first message about us versus them and becoming so entrenched in that duality that we begin to disregard outright anything that our opposition says. We stop listening. Our hearts harden. We get stuck in our own opinions, our own stubborn mindsets. And the campaigns become about personalities. They become the image bearers, the mascots practically for each team, magnified thousands of times up on giant jumbotrons so that every twitch Every smirk, every tear, every misstep, every careless word is scrutinized, analyzed, judged, and locked into a hardening perception of who this person really is and what she or he stands for. If you've been through political campaigns year in, year out, you've seen it getting worse and ever more expensive with each new contest. And this precious idea of public service is rarely emphasized. You and I know that there are tireless public servants out there. Most of them are unsung heroes who work doggedly away from the spotlight, away from the television camera. Your trash collector, the town clerk, the parking attendant, the mail carrier who is out there in rain, sleet, sun, or snow, the social worker, accountant, or policy wonk who helps people find adequate housing, education, and health care. That tireless legislator who quietly and persistently champions issues that will really make a difference in the community 
and sees his or her use of public funds as a sort of sacred trust requiring honesty, integrity, and good discernment. In other countries, they take the language of public service a step further and refer to their departments of government as ministries, like the Ministry of Culture or Finance or Justice, whole sections of their national trust defined by their ability to minister or administer to the people. What has happened to our sense of service? Now, you and I have just been through a lot of unpleasantness, a travesty of public discourse, loose language, enraged crowds, a lack of civility, preying upon people's fears and anxieties. It's been reminiscent of some campaigns of our deeper past. George Wallace, Joe McCarthy, William Jennings Bryan, Father Charles Coughlin, Huey Long, even Andrew Jackson. Just a lot bigger and a lot more closely watched and a lot closer to power. There hasn't been much talk of service to country amid all this noise. Like many of you, and like most of our pollsters, I stayed up into the wee hours of Tuesday night, surprised by what I saw. The progressive bubble that I live in was popped. But I wonder if perhaps it should have been popped earlier. When I try to pull the lens way back and get a God's eye view of what is going on in our country right now, this is what I come up with. First of all, as nations go, we are relatively young, and you and I know how it began, but I want you to permit me a moment to review it with you briefly. Nearly 400 years ago, Europeans first started coming to this land because they needed more room. They needed more freedom, freedom to worship and conduct their lives the way they wanted without government interference. They were seeking to live their lives the ways they thought God wanted in a sort of utopian theocracy just 40 miles from here. Other people came here because they wanted economic opportunity to stake their claim, to make some wealth in a new, more open place. And in the process of seeking these freedoms, growing in numbers, these newcomers made wave after wave of trespasses against the people who were already here, forcibly exterminating and oppressing most of them and backing their survivors into forsaken corners of the land. Now that's what got us all started. And there's some nobility, vision, daring, and purpose in it. There's also a lot of bloodshed, pain, and oppression. Frankly, our history is a mess of contradictions. Now, about 150 years into this American project, a bunch of well-to-do men came together from their various colonies to figure out how to wrest their independence from the sponsoring British monarchy. And as these visionary elites met, they dreamed about what independence might look like. In that dream, about half of them wanted to keep slavery. It was, after all, an entrenched and economically beneficial practice, at least as old as the stories of the Bible, and the other half did not. The idea of abolition was already gaining ground across the ocean. And so they left their convention, determined to seek independence, but agreeing to disagree about slavery. 
And no one embodied this disagreement better than Thomas Jefferson, who with the same hand wrote that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, while also owning slaves with that same hand. Now you and I are all here because they fought for and got that independence. But this basic disagreement of our founding ballooned and festered like an untreated wound until it erupted 85 years later into the deadliest conflict this young country, in fact, one of the deadliest the world has ever known. We were fortunate, we were blessed at that time to have a brilliant, eloquent sage leading us a humbly born man named Abraham after the father of the Israelites, who called us to the better angels of our nature, who sought to keep everybody together and who freed the slaves. He saved the union and lost his life in the process. I say all this because 150 years after that conflict, I look at our electoral maps and I think we just keep redrawing the lines of the Civil War and the lines of our disagreements over and over again. Where the lines were once about slavery, now they're about race, about immigration, about sexual orientation, about abortion and women's equality, to name a few. And there are those of us who want to conserve the tradition who want to keep things the way they have been, who want a sort of hierarchy and orderliness that keeps things under a certain kind of control. And then there are those of us who want to preserve and conserve our economic ascendancy at all costs, even costs to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. There are those of us who want to liberate us to new and daring ideas, to drawing the circle ever wider about who is included in the rights of citizenship, regardless of religion, race, sexual orientation, or country of origin. We want to loosen up the things that bind us. And year after year, you and I can generally predict which states are going to go which way with a small number of toss-up places where these ideas are in constant conflict. If you look to our major cities where people regularly encounter regularly struggle with and also enjoy a broader diversity of backgrounds, you'll find more of this liberal liberating approach. Diversity forces you to confront difference and to deal with it. If you go to some of our suburbs, more rural, more traditional or more homogeneously populated parts of the country, you'll find more of this conserving approach. Over the course of my lifetime, I have experienced us, the United States, as a primarily conservatively governed nation. Eight years of Reagan's neoconservatism, four years of George H.W. Bush's compassionate conservatism, eight years of moderate Democrat Bill Clinton, whose personal failings kept him nipped at by conservatives, eight years under George W. Bush and back to neoconservatism. I have also noticed Ironically, that for the past 24 years, our left-of-center Democratic Party has won the popular vote in six out of the last seven presidential elections, including this past Tuesday. And in that same time, we've seen more people of color and women come to power. We saw it in the congressional races this past week. 
the Indian American, African American, Vietnamese American, Somali American women who were going to Congress. And on a personal note, I will say as a gay man, I have watched how change and acceptance has come to my particular minority with a relatively breathtaking speed over the course of my lifetime. This has been a liberalizing trend. So there's this sort of diagonal crossing of liberal and conservative trends. To people outside of the United States, it must all seem so strange and confusing. It's strange and confusing to us. But I believe if we're going to honor the spirit of our founders, if we're gonna honor the spirit of Abraham Lincoln, we have got to stay in the conversation despite our differences. We've got to open our ears, open our minds, soften our hearts, and really listen. Not agree on everything, but listen. Supporters of Clinton have got to talk to supporters of Trump. Trump supporters have got to talk to Clinton supporters as well as to Johnson and Stein supporters. Not to argue, but to find out what are you really for? What do you really care about? And perhaps more importantly, what scares you? Believe me, I have got to reignite this process in my own family. One of my favorite phrases in our small study groups on Christian practices comes from Parker Palmer who says, when the going gets rough, turn to wonder, turn to curiosity. And when I look at the past eight years of a progressive leaning presidency, I know how happy it has made many of us in Eastern Massachusetts. Throughout our regional history, we've often been on the forefront of such progressive politics. Over the past two decades, we were progressive on a lot of certain issues long before the president or Secretary Clinton got on board. But for our more conservative sisters and brothers, I believe it was too much change, too fast, too much openness, not enough order, and certainly not enough deep economic improvement across the country. There are many in this country who were already feeling broken, beaten, and forgotten by the establishment, by the media, not just in our inner cities, but in rural areas and burnt out towns. These folks live a world away from the so-called liberal elites who are riding high on the information age economy. These hurting people are the ones I am most curious about. Many of them are the ones who drove this election. Many of them are the same people who put their hope in Barack Obama. Now, when I try to follow Jesus, I truly believe he was a liberal, a progressive. I've thought that since my Baptist Sunday School days. I also believe that Jesus was a conservative because he wanted to conserve the tradition of the law, but he also wanted to liberate it to new interpretations. He wanted to show respect for the traditions of the faith, but he also wanted to expand God's kind of love to people traditionally excluded from the faith. He wanted to value the patriarchs and matriarchs embrace of the stranger in their midst and the prophet's admonitions to care for widows and orphans for the least among us. He wanted to conserve those liberating ideals. 
He wanted to conserve the traditional commandments of loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and then liberate them for the truly radical possibility they contain. But above all, I believe that Jesus wanted us to serve others. He wanted us to bind up the broken, to care for the weak, to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick, to release the prisoners, and let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of God's favor. That kind of servanthood is at the heart of Christianity. As we heard in our scripture today, the pioneer of our faith emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself. I believe that Jesus would want to whisper in our ears and remind us and help us to reach out and minister to people who are afraid and hurting because they fear their race or their immigration status or their gender or sexuality will put them in peril. He would want us to reach out to people who feel left behind after each technological advancement or twist in the economy. He'd want us to reach out to people who fear a dying away of the old ways and old demographics and wonder where their place is in this new reality. He'd want us to reach out to people who think we're not doing enough to defend ourselves from ISIS or other external threats. At the same time, I believe Jesus would have no tolerance for the scourge of white supremacy no tolerance for racism or racist rhetoric. The man who told stories about the Good Samaritan and who honored the Abrahamic tradition of welcoming the stranger would have no tolerance for xenophobia. The man whose ministry was all about the good news of love would have no tolerance for homophobia. The man who befriended and uplifted women in his ministry and whose resurrection was first witnessed by the courageous and caring women at the tomb would have no tolerance for misogyny. The man who, like the prophets before him, lifted up the least powerful among us would not tolerate bullying. You and I have heard a lot about what we're against in this election cycle. I want to know what are we for? As Christians, we are foreseeing the image of God in one another. We are for calling out the better angels of our nature. We are for seeking out and helping those who get left out, left behind, and forgotten. And we may be entering an era in which we have to do that even more fervently, even more passionately, with even more commitment and resolve than before. We need to resolve to commit our resources to movements and organizations that cherish these values. We need to resolve to be a church that is even bolder in this kind of witness, this kind of witness for serving the greater good, for the gospel of love, for the wideness of God's mercy. Now this week I've heard several ideas about how we might do that. Perhaps we should develop a relationship with a church in an economically depressed region of a red state so that we can learn more about what people think, feel, and believe, and hopefully respectfully share what we think, feel, and believe, perhaps even share resources. Another idea is to have a monthly day of love where we check in about what we're doing individually and collectively 
for the demonstration of God's love in the world and support one another in that resolve. I know that we are gonna continue to work on ending mass incarceration here in Massachusetts, and we're gonna work on becoming better stewards of God's green earth, regardless of what this administration does. And we need to pray fervently, to believe open-mindedly, to expect unceasingly and to hold the new administration accountable to do everything in its immense power to bring us together as people, to change the rhetoric of the campaign to a rhetoric of responsible governance. Now on an everyday level, there is a movement afoot to invite those who want to be allies in public places to wear a safety pin clearly and visibly wherever we go. My friend and colleague Molly Basquette shared this social media meme with all of the UCC denomination this week. It goes like this. If you wear a hijab, I'll sit with you on the train. If you're trans, I'll go into the bathroom with you. If you're a person of color, I'll stand with you if the cops stop you. If you're a person with disabilities, I'll hand you my megaphone. If you're an immigrant, I'll help you find resources. If you're a survivor, I'll believe you. If you're a refugee, I'll make sure you're welcome. If you're a veteran, I'll take up your fight. If you're LGBTQ, I'll remind you that you are beautiful and loved just as God made you. If you're a woman, I'll make sure you get home okay. If you've been left behind by the new economy, I'll help you get through it. If you're an elder, I'll listen to your stories. If you're tired, so am I. If you need a hug, I've got an infinite supply. If you need me, I'll be with you. All I ask is that you be with me too. And together, we will show the love of God. That, sisters and brothers, is our calling. That is our charge, to be the hands and feet of Christ in a broken and hurting world, to be the servants of others. Nothing more is required and nothing less is acceptable. I am ready as a child of God, a follower of Christ to recommit myself to this task of public and Christian service. And I ask you to join me, amen.